People don't see the built environment as something that can change. The idea is like it's static. It was built this way. It has always looked this way. It will always look this way. They, they don't see that, you know, like, no, we can change it. We can like move a street sign. We can put a crosswalk here. So I think just working with local organizations to say, is this working for you? Is this crosswalk to get to your trail? Does that feel safe and comfortable? If not, let's do something about it. It's Friday, January 28th, 2022. And from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Our cities and towns are built on assumptions. Assumptions about who inhabits the spaces we share, how they get around, what their lives are like, what their needs are. And by now it's pretty well understood that decisions made on the basis of these kinds of assumptions very often disadvantage communities of color, people with disabilities, and lots of others who've historically been left out of the decision-making. As a result, we have public spaces that may feel perfectly safe and welcoming to some, but that could feel entirely different to others. There are just so many well-documented cases where people of different identities have a just completely different experience in the built environment. If you look at data on traffic fatalities, you'll see stark racial and socioeconomic disparities, especially so when the victim is a pedestrian. And all over the country, trail advocates and others who promote active transportation and outdoor recreation are grappling daily with these kinds of life and death inequities. But securing the physical safety of users is really just the first step toward building parks and trail systems that are truly equitable and inclusive. Today, we're talking about how to remake our cities in the image of a more just society. That's coming up after news from Lily Jones. A recent draft report from the Department of Environmental Protection found that one-third of all streams in Pennsylvania have impaired water quality, meaning they're unsafe for aquatic life, recreation, fish consumption, or water supply. The report found a total of 27,886 miles of streams were impaired, almost 2,500 more miles than when the last report of this kind was released in 2020. Abandoned mine runoff, agricultural runoff, and stormwater runoff were the top three sources of impaired water quality. The public can comment on the report until March 1st. You can submit comments through DEP's e-comment tool or via mail. This week, Governor Wolf announced $25 million in funding for restoration projects addressing economic development at abandoned mine land sites. The 2020 Abandoned Mine Land Economic Revitalization Program will provide an additional $25 million in funds. Over a dozen sites throughout the state have already been approved for projects by the Federal Office of Surface Mine Reclamation and Enforcement. Federal funds are also being used to support outdoor recreation. Some Pennsylvania counties and municipalities are considering using American Rescue Plan funding to support public parks and trails. Silas Chamberlain of the York County Economic Alliance says that investing in conservation or outdoor spaces can play an important role in a community's pandemic recovery. During the pandemic, when other sources of tourism were shut down, our outdoor recreation facilities set record numbers for use. It just sort of proved that not only are these kinds of assets important to our tourism economy, but they're incredibly resilient. York County is using $100,000 from its allocation to develop the South Mountain Trolley Greenway between Mechanicsburg and Dillsburg. French Creek in northwestern Pennsylvania has been named 2022's River of the Year after public voting closed on January 14th. Winning nearly half of all votes cast, French Creek will be the site of a commemorative River of the Year sojourn and other celebratory activities in the coming year. French Creek Valley Conservancy, the nominating organization, will be awarded a $10,000 leadership grant to help fund the events. 
River of the Year is administered by the Pennsylvania Organization for Watersheds and Rivers with funding from DCNR. Visit Power's website for updates on River of the Year activities. If you listen to this podcast in the last couple of years, you've probably heard us talk about the dramatic uptick we've seen in trail use and outdoor recreation since the start of the pandemic. All over Pennsylvania, people are turning to the outdoors for exercise, mental health, or just to get out of the house. That's all good news, and it's all still true overall. Statewide, across rural, urban, and suburban communities, the trend is real and appears stable. But the trouble with sweeping generalizations, of course, is what they leave out. When you look at neighborhood-level data, people aren't necessarily more likely to recreate outdoors than they were two years ago. And when you zoom in on lower-income neighborhoods and communities of color in Philadelphia's urban core, you sometimes find that the opposite is even true. People are less motivated to get outdoors than ever before. That's what the Circuit Trails Coalition, of which Peck is a member, discovered with a recent study. It looked at how COVID-19 has affected park and trail use in four communities around Greater Philadelphia. These areas were selected because they're adjacent to existing or planned circuit trail routes, and also because they're home to historically underserved and underrepresented populations. In each neighborhood, a majority of non-white residents reported they're spending less time outdoors than they did pre-pandemic. That set of facts and the reasons behind them have set the agenda for the next phase of the Circuit Trails initiative as the coalition renews its commitment to justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Here to elaborate is the newest member of our trails team at PEC and a new face at the table at the Circuit Trails Coalition, someone who's very familiar with these issues and has faced them in other cities. Emilia Crotty previously served as executive director of LA Walks, which is Los Angeles's leading pedestrian advocacy organization. Before that, she was with Bike New York, where she helped launch that city's bike share program, the biggest in the nation. Both roles helped Amelia to recognize and understand the nature of unequal access to safe, active transportation in our cities, disparities that too often go unnoticed or unaddressed in the conversation about trails and public space. We're hoping to rectify that at least a little bit today. Amelia brings her expertise in L.A. and New York now to Philadelphia and the circuit trails by way of PEC. And to today's podcast, Amelia, sorry for the long-winded introduction, but welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Give us a little bit of a self-introduction first. Tell me about uh, where you're coming to us from, what you were doing there, how you got started in this line of work, defined however you want to define this line of work. Sure. Um, so I'll start with, I guess, maybe how I got into what I would say is active transportation, walking and biking advocacy. And it really started through my own lived experience. Um, I grew up in coastal Massachusetts and as a teenager, so I have two sisters and we shared one car. And so as a teenager, I wanted to get a job. I wanted wanted to make money. (laughs) So in order to do so, I needed to ride my bike to that job or I needed to get there, you know, of my own power. So that my sisters could uh, use the car for themselves. So I started to ride my bike to this job and quickly realized that the streets, even in you know small town Massachusetts, are not designed for like a 16-year-old girl to be riding her bike, her like you know old mountain bike, um, a few miles to work. And um, and so when I in 1999 when I moved to New York City, I brought my bike again because like I used it for transportation, and. I realized the same thing is that the streets of New York City were not built for me on my bike. I quickly then got into advocacy and education. I had the benefit of 
in New York City uh, being plugged in to biking advocacy and walking advocacy through transportation alternatives, a really terrific organization that taught me most of what I know. And yeah, and worked to organize people there to push for a built environment that works for more people walking and biking. Um, something I think is really cool that I'll share is that um, as a cyclist, like one of the things that I've learned is that the bicycle was really um, critical in the women's liberation movement. Bicycles gave women autonomy, bodily autonomy. They allowed them to like get around and economic independence. And it, I think it's really neat that like literally that's what drew me to the bicycle. It's like economic independence. And um, I think it's a motivator for me now because I see the bicycle, I see like safe walking places as access to opportunity. And I think that should be available to everyone, no matter how much money they make, no matter what they have available to them in terms of like how they travel, that people should have equal access to opportunity. And so I think that's really what has kept me motivated in the field of um, the built environment, public health and active transportation is that we should all be able to move around safely and comfortably to get to where we need to go to like be our best selves. <laughs> um, most recently I was in Los Angeles and I can talk to you about um, Los Angeles Walks, the organization that where I worked. Let's talk about Los Angeles walks. Not not the most like famously walkable city in America. No, <laughs> though people do walk there. Like I think the organization really worked hard to say people walk in Los Angeles, whether they're walking to the bus or they're walking to even to get to their car. Frankly, people are walking on the sidewalks of L.A. Um, and it can be challenging and it can be dangerous. And it is. And that's why the organization exists. So I was the first staff person started as the program manager there and then became the executive director. And the mission of the organization really is to train and mobilize community members to fight for a built environment that where they feel safe, comfortable, uh, where it's convenient for them to walk, where it's convenient and comfortable for them to roll if they're using a mobility device, and really just build people power. It was the organization works to build a constituency for walking and shift culture in Los Angeles so that people recognize other people walking, that they literally see the people that are waiting at the bus stop as like human beings who need to cross safely. Um, it was really phenomenal work. There's a lot to be done there, but um, LA Walks continues and it's doing you know terrific organizing. Um, a couple things that I will lift up that I think were like just some of the more pivotal projects that um, we worked on there is amplifying the voices of people who are most immediately impacted by traffic collisions, which are the leading cause of death for children in, in Los Angeles. So we organized um, Families for Safe Streets, which is, it's a model where many cities have Families for Safe Streets. We started SoCal Families for Safe Streets, which brought together families who lost loved ones in traffic collisions and, and helped them to become vocal advocates for street safety measures. Um, we trained community leaders to organize their residents to put in for curb ramps and better sidewalks. Um, we worked with artists to create these opportunities for people to get involved in the movement for safe streets through like really just colorful, vibrant activities. Um, all of this was, was really focused on the city's Vision Zero initiative to eliminate traffic, traffic fatalities by 2025. So as I said, the work continues. I'm a huge supporter. Um, and yeah, I'm really proud of what I did in LA. And um, I think it really influences what I'm doing here as well, here on, in the trails. Yeah, let's let's make that connection then. What brought you to this side of the country and how do you view that as what, what you're doing now as a continuation of what you've been doing? 
Well, so I'm going to be really honest that despite my love for Los Angeles, I think the work I did with SoCal Families for Safe Streets made me realize that anything can change in an instant, that nothing is guaranteed in this life. And whenever I met with those families, it made me miss my own. And they're all here on the East Coast. And I realized that I needed to be back and closer to them. Um, and I honestly think that it gave me, my work there gave me a heightened awareness of my vulnerability on the streets and sidewalks of LA. And I just was frankly, like really nervous a lot of the time and needed a lower stress walking and biking environment, which Philadelphia offers. Despite the fact that it has per, per 100,000 residents, a very similar number of traffic fatalities and injuries as Los Angeles, the like day-to-day experience on the streets is much lower stress. Um, my husband's job is based here in Philadelphia or was at the time. And so it was a natural choice, but Philly offers, I mean, a phenomenal park system and just small human scaled built environment. Um, and you know, honestly also it's affordable. I lived for 20 years in New York city and Los Angeles and, (laughs) and I was tired of spending so much money on rent, um, or such a huge portion of my salary on rent, but I think the livability of Philadelphia was a huge draw. And so hopefully that much more livable uh, when your work is done here. Tell me more about like uh, where you see opportunities uh, to build on lessons learned, accomplishments uh, from, from LA or elsewhere. Yeah. The work that we were doing in Los Angeles was, it was a really multiracial effort uh, to address traffic fatalities, to address the historical neglect of certain communities that led to you know, black kids being twice as likely to be killed while walking, low-income residents being twice as likely to be killed while walking than higher-income residents. These, you know, incredible health and safety disparities across races. That was central to everything we did in in at Los Angeles Walks with the Vision Zero Initiative, with all of our coalition partners in LA, an incredibly diverse city. And so that I think is really the influence. That's the, that's what I the lens I bring to the work of um, working on trails in the greater Philadelphia region. And it's a, I think it's a beautiful fit because the Circuit Trails Coalition of which Peck is a member and a steering committee member has recently shifted its, I shouldn't say shifted its focus, but really started to center, center racial justice, economic justice um, in the work of ensuring everyone has access to trails everyone feels comfortable and welcome and safe on the trails in their neighborhood. We are very lucky to have research that the the Circuit Trails Coalition conducted in 2020 that is absolutely guiding the way. Um, Market research called the Equity of Access to Trails Report that is a clear roadmap for what the coalition needs to do to ensure that everyone in all neighborhoods, no matter your race, your ability, your gender, your age, that you feel safe and comfortable on your local trails because they belong to you just like they belong to every single other person in the city. Um, and, And so the work I think of the coalition is to realize those findings, to, to make them a reality and to bring more people into the trails to make them feel a sense of ownership. Um, and that, that again, like this is their space. I'll say one more thing is that something that's common across any all the work I've ever done is that people don't see the built environment as something that can change. The idea is like it's static. It was built this way. 
it has always looked this way. It will always look this way. They, they don't see that, you know, like, no, we can change it. We can like move a street sign. We can put a crosswalk here. And then, and also just that there are like so many different versions of street design that many of us aren't even aware of because we don't see it. So I think just working with local organizations to say, is this working for you? Is this crosswalk to get to your trail? Does that feel safe and comfortable? If not, let's do something about it. You know, so um, I'm excited to bring that to Peck. I really want to explore this idea of uh, how different people perceive public space and how that relates to you know the the cities that we live in and how they got to be that way. And mm-hmm. and going back to something you said early on about as as a kid getting around your small town and and finding that you know you didn't necessarily feel safe in a way that possibly other users of of those roads and sidewalks and trails might have felt safe. And this seems like this is really at the center of a lot of what you're doing. The fact that people from different racial, gender, ethnic, socioeconomic backgrounds can have very different experiences out and about there in the world. What are some examples of the ways in which those differences are reflected in, in the the planning and the design and, and the operation of cities? Yeah. And, and how can we center more identities when we're making those decisions that make our cities look the way they look? Right. So to me, the most obvious example here is physical ability. When I moved to LA, I noticed that a man every morning would roll on his electric wheelchair up the pretty steep street that I was, you know, renting an apartment on in the street on in this electric wheelchair, you know, putting himself in danger of moving vehicles, cars, exiting driveways, all kinds of dangers. But when you walk the sidewalks or if you roll the sidewalks of that, of that neighborhood in a lot of Los Angeles and a lot of different cities across the country, the sidewalks are impassable. You know, they had tree roots had lifted up entire concrete slabs. If there was a curb ramp, which, you know, curb ramps are incredibly inconsistent. If there was one, it was too steep for the electric wheelchair to, to make it up. So that right there, like his lived experience of the built environment is so radically different than mine as an able-bodied you know, youngish woman um, walking the streets and sidewalks. And that you can, you know, you can say that about so many different experiences. People who um, present as gay or transgender, um, women, I mean, like there's whole movements around building cities for women. There are just so many well-documented cases where people of different identities have a just completely different experience in the built environment. And I mean, this goes back to what I was saying, like, you know, low-income communities, LA Walks did some research, low-income communities, the sidewalks are physically farther apart than they are in higher-income communities, which means what happens is that you've got to make a decision. Am I going to make a dangerous crossing here, or am I going to go way out of my way to get to the crosswalk down the road? Um, And that leads, of course, to those major disparities in, like, safety statistics. So what do you think we can do about it is involve more people in the process of assessing their built environment and then making changes to it. And so what um, Peck is working on right now and the Circuit Trails Coalition is working on right now is cultivating those relationships with local organizations that are on the ground, local interest groups, starting a re-grant program to make sure that local organizations have the, literally have the capacity, like they have the funding to do the work, to do, let's say, a walk audit so that people make sure that we make sure that people can actually safely access the trail near them, like literally just by crossing the street, if they can, changing the built environment around them to make it accessible. The other thing I would say is a lot of these trails 
are populated by white people <laughs> and other other people that are not white, black and brown people, they might not feel, and our study shows, this Equity of Access to Trails report shows that black and brown residents who are who were the, the subjects of the study um, in four different cities, in Camden, Norristown, Trenton, and Cobbs Creek, they did not feel welcome on the trails. They did not feel like it was a space where in which you know, they saw themselves reflected. They didn't feel safe. So we need to change that. We need to work with organizations to potentially hire ambassadors who reflect the, the makeup of the neighborhood so that people see a friendly face, someone who looks like them, you know, with a presence on the trail, making sure they feel an overt sense of welcome on that trail. So, yeah, we, we do have a, a lot of work to do. But as I said, the report lays it all out so clearly. So we know where we, where we need to go. It was fascinating to me when we got the results of that market research. Uh, it was it was all happening at the same time as Peck was researching and touting the results of our research into trail use during the pandemic as, mm -hmm. as a consequence of the pandemic. And at the same period, responding to largely the same uh, circumstances and conditions, what we found, and, and tell me if I'm remembering this right, but from the report, I believe people were actually going outside less in some communities, and it, and it was it, it had to do with safety and feeling welcome and feeling, yeah. you know, like one belongs in a place. Right. COVID-19 was a huge barrier, so that, that was the number one reason why the people being part of the study were, were not comfortable using the trails immediately after that was just a perception of safety. We have to be on, like clear about what the contexts are in some of these communities where people suffer much higher incidences of gun violence, where that is a true fear when you're walking in your public space. And um, and we need to understand that. That might not be my lived experience or members of the Circuit Trails Coalition, but through this research, we're able to understand that that is a true concern and we need to figure out how to address that as well. I think the other thing I want to say is like, you know, black our black and brown neighbors are the ones who are keeping our city running right now, they are the essential workers. When you also have school closures and daycare shutting down, it's no wonder that there are um, fewer opportunities for black, brown, and low-income people to be active in the outdoors. So you know, a big part of what we need to do then, as you said, is to actually start in the community and work with the people in the communities, make them feel included, involved, a sense of ownership. What are some of the ways that that might happen? You mentioned an ambassadorship program. Uh, I don't. I know it's still pretty early on in terms of some of these initiatives, but what can you tell us about what what that might look like? Right. So a few, there are a few models right here in the city that um, Tukoni Tukoni Frankfurt Watershed Partnership has the current ambassador program in which they hire local residents to work the trails. Um, you can also look to Washington D.C. area and the Waba. Um, you know they have. They have paying jobs where people from neighborhoods work, and I say work the trails as in, like they have a presence on the trail. They're well sort of labeled, you know, they're not wearing a uniform. They're not like an armed police officer. They are just a local resident who can help you find your way, can answer a question about the trail, can say hello and how are you doing and nice to see you again, um, to make sure that just that people feel like this is their space and this is where they belong, just like um, anyone else. And I wanna say like that, that also offers everyone else, everyone, that offers all of us a better, richer experience on the trails. And that PEC and the Circuit Trails Coalition, we're doing, we're doing this work. We're centering, I think, racial justice and economic justice in this work because it makes for a better experience for everyone. 
and because it's long overdue and because it's the, it's just in the right thing to do and our many of our neighbors are going to benefit from it but it we all benefit from it the other thing is this regrant program i talked about um, so funding local organizations to actually do the outreach the education the programming like we're talking about like culturally relevant programming that is enticing to local families who want to come out and listen to music and get something from a food truck um, and maybe not run or bike on the trail, but find a quiet place to enjoy nature um, and just address the different needs of different communities, really. One thing that's really cool, I think, about the the idea for the ambassador program is that it's not a huge leap in terms of the work that that gets done. We like this model kind of exists in some form, but it's the kind of thing that often uh, we tend to rely on volunteers, right? Somebody mm-hmm. who's maybe retired or is like a super user of the trail has a very particular kind of relationship with the with the amenity, and obviously that's not a luxury that everyone has. And so if you're if you're depending on volunteers and that sort of engaged community member to be your ambassador, then you're right from the get go excluding a lot of people potentially. So making it a paid position, uh, mm-hmm. a, a simple kind of change, but it seems really important, right? Uh, what else can we do to kind of uh, to, to account for the fact that you may have a population of people who are interested, who want to be involved or, or, or could get there, but there are just structural impediments to them even participating in the system that we have, that we're used to working within? Right. So a few things come to mind here. One is that despite what I just said about, you know, lower percentage of, uh, of use among like our black, brown and low income residents because they're essential workers and have like additional um, maybe burdens. I do want to like push back a little bit and say, I think there's a misconception that the populations I just named have either no interest or no time or no capacity to participate in these kinds of like advocacy or organizing activities. Because I went to a parks summit held by the Parks and Recreation and Fairmount Park Conservancy, and the number of and the diversity of the Friends of Parks groups in Philadelphia is just wild and completely representative of the city. So it is possible to organize and to to recruit and to develop leaders among all different population groups to steward their public spaces. I think that what the coalition the Circuit Trails Coalition needs to do a better job of is informing people, educating people about these trails. Something that the research also find found, the equity of access to trails research, is that a lot of people don't even know that there's a trail near them. They don't know where it goes. They don't know how far it is to whatever destination. And if you don't have that knowledge, you're not going to fight for it. You're not going to say, this is my trail and I want it to be well-maintained and I want more people to access it. So I think we need to do a better job of um, what I just described earlier is like the programming, the, the activities that are enticing that get you out onto the trail, not just the running groups, but like walking groups and birding and like yoga in the, on the trail, like just an array of programs that reach different people who have different interests. And, um, and then we need to be really intentional about developing leaders and offering them you know, ways to get involved that are a low lift to start and that we recognize them and name them and celebrate them so that there's like a track towards leadership development and stewardship. And yeah, it's a lot of work, but these are models that, as I just said, like the Friends of Parks groups um, have been really successful with. And so I think that shows there's a tremendous potential and it's completely possible. We just need to be intentional about what we're doing. 
and and put that into practice, you know? And looking at the composition of the coalition itself, right? Are we looking at sort of expanding that group, bringing more, yeah. like who, who should be in the conversations with the coalition? Yeah, 100%. And that's written into the strategic plan of the coalition that was just adopted that right now it's sort of like the usual suspects. Um, it's conservancy groups and bicycle coalition and all these groups that naturally work or move towards in this direction of supporting circuit trails. And now I think it's, it's our job to reach out to a wider array of organizations that might not be, the mission might not be perfectly aligned, but we can start those conversations about what are our mutual, how are we, how is this mutually beneficial um, to whatever you're doing, whatever we're doing, how can we support you and your own agenda as an organization without any kind of, agenda of our own, you know, um, and just start to build those relationships and cultivate them and um, and bring more people into this work at different in different ways too, you know, so there's not just like one membership option and it's incredibly burdensome and, you know, there are tons of meetings, but like just different ways that organizations and interest groups can stay involved. So it begins with broadening, enriching that conversation, bringing more people in there's already a stated commitment to to diversity, equity, inclusion, justice. All, all these values have been have been mm-hmm. validated and accounted for in the strategic plan. But we're still kind of like, I don't know, would it be fair to say this is still aspirational to some degree? What I'm getting at Absolutely. is where what's like what's the next phase? Is there a way to yeah. systematically account for these objectives, you know, in the day-to-day decision making of the Yeah. Mission? And that's exactly it. I have to say, someone I worked with in Los Angeles, a a colleague of mine there who I learned a lot from, um, Tamika Butler, taught me that racial equity and racial equity work is really just about prioritizing it. You know, you you just got to prioritize it. And I think that first we have names that we want to prioritize it. And now what we need to do is create those structures and systems so that we are constantly prioritizing it, so that we're constantly assessing what we've done, taking a look at whether or not that aligned with the research findings and recommendations. If it didn't, we need to figure out how we adjust so that next time we are more in in line with those recommendations and create that culture of assessment and accountability so that we are no longer just thinking about and like aspiring to these certain values, but that we're actually living them in our everyday practices and procedures. And then it becomes the culture of the group, that this is how we operate. This is not just, you know, some a set of vision and, you know, goals that we have listed on a website somewhere. This is like who we are and what we do. And so we, um, yeah, we have to build systems that keep us aligned with the findings. One thing that I should mention that Peck has been working on is this gap analysis. So it's a nerdy, nerdy name <laughs> for something that really, it answers the question, where are there segments in the circuit trails network, which is like, you know, hundreds of miles, where are there segments that have not been completed, that if they are completed, will have a a larger benefit in terms of increasing access for black and brown communities, increasing access for low-income communities, increasing access to transit, all these different factors. So my very smart colleagues here at PEC, they have looked at census data and all kinds of different data sources tied to sort of like each of these gaps so that now we can rank them. This methodology is so that like you can create these fancy lists that show you this trail is going to increase the access for this many people because it's population density so that we can start to prioritize those gaps that have a higher community impact. And this way, it's not just the trails that maybe like 
because of our own experience, we feel most aligned to, or the, maybe this decision maker has been pushing for it. Like now we can actually say, these are our values and this is how we're going to prioritize these projects. And we're going to push for funding them. And we're going to work at the local level to make sure people in the neighborhood want them too, because that's also a factor. It's like making sure that we're doing the data-driven work, but also like the ground truthing to make sure that the local residents are in support and that we're doing this the right way. So creating tools like that, that sort of like force you to live your values. So that's something Peck's working on right now. So as, as we kind of wrap up, I want to step back and look a little bit more at the why question, right? And we talked a little bit about the disparate experiences of the COVID-19 pandemic as it relates to the outdoors. Why is that important, I guess? What does access to safe, active transportation, outdoor spaces mean in terms of the health and well-being of a community, broadly speaking? Yeah. So, of course, there's the obvious benefits of increased physical activity. You know, there's like heart healthy benefits to being active in the outdoors. But I would argue that more important now is the benefits of being in nature, the mental health benefits, the emotional benefits of being able to step away from stressful urban environments and take a deep breath in nature, reconnecting with friends we've been isolated from for so long, with family members who are, you know, all incredibly busy. This is what it takes to strengthen families, to build communities. You know, whether it was in Los Angeles working on sidewalks or here in Philly working on um, trails, I think the focus really is on free public spaces where we can gather. You know, those are becoming fewer and further between. We have so many spaces now that are just built around commerce and, you know, spending money that I think it's incredibly important that we fight really hard for any spaces we have that are free and available to everyone so that we can come together and just be in community. That is what the work is right now. It, for me, it's the social cohesion that these spaces offer that should be available to everyone. You know, the study also showed that people really want to be outside. They might not know about their trail. They might, you know, there might be fears and perceptions of our own safety and danger, but people want to get outside and so they should be able to. Yeah. Well, I got to say, it's it's really exciting to see these things beginning to kind of come together after a period of discussion and you being on the job really kind of snaps a lot of it into focus in a really helpful way. So we're going to be watching closely. Hope you'll come back and, and update us on what's going on with these efforts in the future. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Amelia Crotty, a senior program manager for Trails and Outdoor Recreation out of Peck's Philadelphia office. We'll be sure to link you to that Equity of Access to Trails report we discussed in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find them at peckpa.org, where you'll find all of our past episodes, including uh, some featuring work that our partners in Philadelphia and elsewhere are doing to make our trails, watersheds, and shared public spaces more equitable and welcoming. And of course, learn about what Peck is doing in energy and climate and in advocacy for sound environmental policy at the state and federal levels all at the website one more time, peckpa.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter, too. And we'll be back with another episode in about two weeks' time. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.